expected, however, so what were we being told? Perhaps that we weren't really Indian? Later in the day, an eminent Indian academic delivered a paper on Indian culture that utterly ignored all minority communities. When questioned about this from the floor, the professor smiled benignly and allowed that of course India contained many diverse traditions— including Buddhists, Christians, and Mughals. This characterization of Muslim culture was more than merely peculiar. It was a technique of alienation. For if Muslims were Mughals, then they were foreign invaders, and Indian Muslim culture was both imperialist and inauthentic. At the time we made light of the jibe, but it stayed with me, pricking at me like a thorn. A decade later, India has arrived at a full-blown crisis of descriptions. Religious militancy threatens the foundations of the secular state. Many Indian intellectuals now appear to accept the Hindu nationalist definitions of the state. Minority groups respond with growing extremisms of their own. It is perhaps significant that there is no commonly used Hindustani word for secularism. The importance of the secular ideal in India has simply been assumed, in a rather unexamined way. Now that communalist forces would appear to have all the momentum, secularism's defenders are in alarming disarray. And yet, if the secularist principle were abandoned, India could simply explode. It is a paradoxical fact that secularism, which has been much under attack of late, outside India as well as inside it, is the only way of safeguarding the constitutional, civil, human, and, yes, religious rights of minority groups. Does India still have the political will to insist on this safeguard? I hope so. We must all hope so. And we shall see. The first three sections of this volume deal with subcontinental themes. Section 1 contains work roughly grouped around Midnight's children. Section 2 is about the politics of India and Pakistan. Section 3 is about literature. Indo-Anglian literature is presently in excellent shape. Many new writers made their reputations in the 1980s. Vikram Seth, Alan Seeley, Amitav Ghosh, Rohinton Mystery, Upanamu Chatterjee, Shashi Tharoor, and more, and are producing work of growing confidence and originality. If only the political scene were as healthy. But alas, the damage done to Indian life by the emergency, Mrs. Gandhi's period of authoritarian rule between 1974 and 1977, is now all too plain. The reason why so many of us were outraged by the emergency went beyond the dictatorial atmosphere of those days, beyond the jailing of opponents and the forcible sterilizations. The reason was, as I first suggested six years ago in the essay here entitled Dynasty, that it was during the emergency that the lid flew off the Pandora's box of communal discord. The box may be shut now, but the goblins of sectarianism are still on the loose. Indian painters like Vivan Sundaram 
rose nobly to the challenge of the emergency. No doubt, Indian writers and artists will respond with equal skill to the new crisis. Bad times, after all, traditionally produce good books. The fourth section deals primarily with movies and television. I have tinkered only a little with the original form of these pieces, but I should say that seven years on, I find Outside the Whale a little unfair to George Orwell and to Henry Miller, too. I haven't changed my mind about Richard Attenborough's film Gandhi, but it must be accepted that the film's influence outside India was often very positive. Radical and progressive groups and movements in South America, Eastern Europe, and Southern Africa, too, found it uplifting. The piece about Hansworth songs stimulated a lively debate among black British filmmakers, some of it supportive of my view.